Thanks, buddy. So I've had a, a great week up at Paluma at camp, and Paluma is one of my favorite places. And the reason for that is, I, I think it kind of fulfills a bit of a childhood like fantasy for me. I go up there, and we're out at this campsite, and just as it gets a little bit dark and the dust comes, this cloud just sweeps through. And you, you know, I'm now I, you know, fairly middle-aged kind of age, but I jumped out and I kind of stood there and went, and just felt the cloud come past me and like you get the mist and like, I think it reminds me of being little and going, I wish I could jump on a cloud and go for a ride. But I just love Paluma, I love the atmosphere, it's so green, it's um, just a lovely place to be. And the clouds are one of my favorite bits, the misty mountains. And it just so happens that that is a segue into what we're talking about this morning. I've been reading through Exodus chapter 40, and uh, allow me to read with you. So Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through to 38. Exodus, last chapter of Exodus 34 to 38. Talks about the glory of the Lord. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. How cool is that? Can you imagine being part of that community? And you know, you go, there's that cloud, maybe it's just a coincidence the cloud's going through the tabernacle. But day after day, it settles, it rises, it goes. And then at night, it turns into fire. I, I was talking about that with my kids, and they're like, I wonder if you could have like, had marshmallows and toast. I'm like, I'm not going near the, the glory of God with marshmallows. I think that might be a little bit um, too trite. But how amazing would it have been for the Israelites? We sang a song. Love this one. Your love never fails, it never gives out, it never, never gives up on me. It's constant in the trial and the change. That's a great song. And, and no matter what the Israelites were going through, they had this visible image of the presence of God in their camp. You know, inside were all these, in the tabernacle, all these intricately built things. And if you read that little bit of Exodus before chapter 40, you see about all these skilled tradesmen that had put together amazing ornaments and intricates. But you know, the gold would have been amazing, the bronze, the silver ornaments, but just to see the presence of God filling the tabernacle. And it was so intense that Moses couldn't enter into the tent of meeting when God was there. That's how full on his presence was in that place. The best part is that this is the first version of cloud control. The cloud would rise up and the people would immediately follow. They were obedient. That is amazing for a nation. The fire meant that they could travel at night. They could follow this fire and they could go through the desert. And it, I, I just kind of got to thinking about this, that, that the cloud and the fire were there from the very beginning of the Exodus. We don't necessarily, we're not told that specifically, but in chapter 13 of Exodus, it says that when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people by the desert toward the Red Sea. 
God himself led the people by the cloud. That is so cool. Numbers chapter 9 gives us a bit more detail. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp, and then at his command, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening till morning, and when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, by night whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud st- <laughs> struggling this morning. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. And the Lord's command, they encamped. The Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. So the Israelites followed God in the cloud. It must have been tough though, hey? Like going through the desert, you know, I struggle on a, a day camp. You know, we go to the camp. You, you don't want to camp for any less than a day because you set everything up and then you have to pack it all down. Can you imagine you, you're living by tent, so everything you own you, is going with you. You see the clouds settle down. You're like, all right, let's set up camp. You set everything out. Quibus, I can just see, has lined everything up perfectly, symmetrically. He's got the camp just where he wants it. And then the cloud lifts and you're off. And I can see Quibus pulling his hair out going, oh no. Not again. I just got this exactly where I wanted it to. There's going to be sand all through my tent. You know, the Israelites were obedient. There's definitely times when they weren't happy, but they were obedient. Sometimes it must have felt like they needed a bit of a break. Sometimes they probably wanted to do their own thing, but they still followed. And it reminded me of that trip on Horseshoe, uh, on Magnetic Island, Horseshoe Bay, when our boat broke down. And the Coast Guard came over, we were sitting there for ages, they hooked up to the front of the, the boat, and we were off. And we're traveling across Magnetic, uh, across the, the bay, pretty good conditions, but that boat at that time traveled faster than it had ever traveled before, even under our own power. And I'm in the back holding on. There were times when I thought, I wonder if they know I'm back here. They were just gunning it. And I kind of said, look, I really want to do my own thing. I don't want to be going that fast. Can we slow down? You're not listening to me. I'm waving. And they just, um, it was their Saturday. They didn't want to spend any extra time out in the water. And they had to. They had twin 150s and they were using every horsepower they had. And that was, I reckon, what it might have been a bit like for the Israelites. They were following God. They weren't super keen about it at times. But they trusted that he knew what was going on, that he knew what he was doing. There was this one place, and I'm, I'm reading through, if you read through Numbers, Numbers 33, you get the full itinerary. Uh, if, after about three or four verses in, in Numbers 33, I'm like, I'm over camping, I'm done. But they go from spot to spot. And there's this one place called Elim. And I'm like, if I was, if I was going the, the journey, this is a place where I'm setting up camp at Elim. It says there's 12 springs at a limb and 70 palm trees. In my mind, like there's a, we've been going through this hot and dusty desert and then we come to this tropical oasis. And the, you know, the clouds going ahead and the Israelites are sticking their head around the side of the cloud and they're seeing these palm trees and these springs and this green and they're going, is that an oasis? Is that real? And you know, I'd be like, God, can we stay there? Can we camp there? Can we set up? there 
But before long, they're packed up and they're off. Despite the uncomfortable parts of the journey and the grumbling that surfaces frequently, the Israelites could not deny that the presence of God was with them every step of the journey. Through the good bits, through the bad bits, God was there and he was with them. And what amazed me is that even when they sinned, he didn't leave. He didn't forsake them. He will never leave them nor forsake them. Um, you remember when, when Moses is coming down with those two tablets and he finds the whole people um, there with the calf and they're worshipping Baal and Moses gets a little bit cranky and he, he chucks those tablets down. Even then, God didn't desert the Israelites. When they had sinned, they'd cast him aside so quickly, forgotten that he was the one who led them out of Israel, out of, out of Egypt, sorry. Um, so quickly, they forgot about him, but he didn't leave them. He didn't forsake them. And not only that, he protected them through the journey, especially the start when they're on the way to the Red Sea. It says that God was, was leading them, and then when that Israel, the Egyptian army, I don't know why I keep calling the Egyptians Israelites, when the Egyptians, I need to go over and visit the Promised Land so I get my geography right. When the Egyptians are chasing hard, it says that God moved from being in front to being behind. And so now there's a cloud and the presence of God blocking the evil from attack. Um, and it says even that there was a, a difference between light and day. So on the, on the Egyptian side, they're getting darkness, but on the Israelite side, they're getting light. How cool is that? I have no, like, in my mind, I'm sure I've, I've been as fickle as the Israelites, but how do you see that kind of stuff and then grumble against God? And I guess it's kind of how we're built. We, it doesn't take much for us to turn inward and, and to be selfish, but God was active protecting. You know, this was a journey that they needed to take to become God's people. God was intentional at all those stops at those different places. You know, we get a little insight that he wasn't going to take them at the shortest route because he knew that they would desert him and that they would leave and run back to Egypt. So the path that he took, even though it was harsh, there was difficult times, there was desert, it was intentional from God. Our God is a God of intentionality. Um, you know, you just have to look at the earth and realise that we, we move a, a, a million kilometres either way and we get burnt to a crisp. Uh, if the, the rotation of the earth changes, life ceases to exist. We live in a, on a world and on a planet of intricate design. God is a God of intentionality. And so the journey that his people had gone on was one that needed to be there, that they needed to go through those steps to become the people that God wanted them to be. You know, this is still a big question that I get asked. Grade 12 camp, I get asked it. I, I guess we ask it at different times. How do I follow God? How do I know which way to go? What if I go the wrong direction? What if I'm doing the thing that I'm not supposed to be doing? How do I know which way to go? And God's presence with the Israelites in Exodus is a great example for us. We serve an unchanging God. John 14:6 says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. To be with you forever. Just like God was with the Israelites, God promises to be with us through his spirit, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him because he lives in you and he will be 
so because he lives with you and will be in you. You know, you feel, I feel a little jaded about the cloud and the fire thing because that's awesome and it's spectacular and I love clouds. So I, I kind of would love to see God in the cloud, but we have a much better deal. Um, we had, there was a whole nation that was following one cloud. We have God, the Spirit, indwelling each one of us. We have direction, the Israelites had the direction of God at the front. We have direction from God on the inside. The tabernacle has changed. We now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that presence is in us. That's awesome. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 says it this way. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So not only do we have the Holy Spirit that guides us, but the Holy Spirit in us is evidence that we are God's children, that we are his. These eyes had the pillar of cloud to follow, but we have the internal voice that guides us every step of the way, if we're willing to listen. We have our own journey, and like the Israelites, there's patches where it's, it's hard, patches where it feels like we're going through dry and dusty times. There's also little spots, little oases that we go through in life where everything is, is aligned, everything's going well. Enjoy those moments because you're not going to be camped there for long. It's not how it works. We don't become the people that God wants us to be having life with no difficulties and no struggles, unfortunately. It's going to take those trials and those difficulties for your faith to grow your trust to grow and for you to be discipled by the Lord through his spirit in us. The comfort that we can take from Exodus 40 and Romans 8 is that nothing that we face is without purpose. God can use every struggle, every trial, every good thing in our life for his purpose. He can even use the bad stuff. And I've probably talked to you before about Bob Goff and um, Carby. Have I? Well, I'm surprised. Okay, that's good. Got a shocking memory. You know, when I start replaying the same illustrations, just let me know and I'll mix it up a little bit. So Bob Goff um, talks about a time he went to, to um, oh, now I've got a mind blank and you guys haven't heard the story, so you can't fill in the bits. Oh, African nation, insert. Uganda, how do you know that? Yeah, Uganda. He is the, he, so Bob Goff is the proconsul for Uganda. I have told this, you're just being generous. So. No. no, okay. Anyway, he's a pro-consul for Uganda. He's going across and he's fighting, um, he's fighting slavery, but there's also this really sick tradition over there that the witch doctors will sacrifice kids um, and just for, as part of their practices. So there's this one kid called Charlie, I'll give his name Charlie, and he was attacked and kidnapped by one of these witch doctors. They cut off uh, parts of his anatomy and left him for dead because that was part of their ritual. Anyway, this, this kid survived and this little guy was used as, with Bob to prosecute and put Carby in jail. And this guy was a, a sick guy, Mil you know, not millions, but lots and lots of kids had been abducted and, and killed by this guy. And so he gets put in maximum security. And you think that's the end of the story. But what happens is that Bob goes and visits this guy in jail and he you know he's adopted Charlie so he's like Charlie's dad 
And then he goes face to face with the man who tried to murder him and tries to become his friend. That I'm just getting tingles down my back thinking about that. How do you sit face to face with that guy? And what's more amazing is that Carby becomes a Christian. And it's funny, he, um, he tells of, of how Carby at one point, that, so they're going through, they're reading the Bible together, um, he's discipling Carby, and at one point Carby goes, I forgive you. I know I'm going to spend the rest of my life in jail, but I forgive you. He goes, what? You can't forgive me? You're the bad guy. But he yeah, it just talks about this journey, and then there's another time where he's, he actually asks the prison, which has 3,000 inmates um, designed to take two or 300, uh, he asks if Carby can do a gospel presentation. And so up the front of this, this um, group of people, there's Bob, and he's holding Carby's hand, and Carby is doing a gospel presentation to all these inmates. And, you know, hundreds of these guys come forward and become Christians. And to me, that just illustrates the beautiful, amazing things that come out of the worst of society, the worst of life. And so we, we're going to go through those different journeys. We're going to go through those highs and those lows. But even when it seems like there's no hope, when it seems like it's the worst of situations, God can bring amazing things out of that. That's how good our God is, and that's what he does. You know, and I guess when we ask, how do I follow God? What we're really asking for is an end point. We're asking for a final destination. Where do I end up and we, we know that's not how God works uh, if God had sat down with Moses at the burning bush in chapter 3 and gone this is the rest of your life this is where you're going to end up going that's where you die I wonder if Moses goes I'm out No, uh, thanks for the offer I'll go back to the sheep and I wonder if that for us some of that stuff would also be enough to be a deal breaker if we knew the hardship that we were going to face uh, it's easy to take one step at a time very difficult to see the journey as a full scope and that's what God does he doesn't ask us to get to there he just asks us to take one step in trust following him when he camps we have to camp when he moves we have to move and we have to be obedient to know that that's what he's calling us to one step at a time follow God unreservedly and I like this morning that you asked us the question Quibus, whether we love God with our whole hearts because that's, that's what we face. We face that difficulty. We, we want to be the people making the decisions. We don't necessarily want God to make the calls. It's an internal struggle that we face to follow him with our whole heart. How do we follow Jesus day by day? I want to tell you that there's some things that we can do to help ourselves to make sure that we are following our hearts, following the spirit and following God's calling. Number one is stepping out of your comfort zone. Like I said, if, if it's too comfortable, if it's too easy, chances are you're not doing what God's called you to do. There weren't many examples in the scripture of people who followed God with their whole hearts and chilled. Um, doesn't, doesn't work that way. You know, we always make that prayer, Lord, keep us safe. And maybe we need to pray less of, Lord, keep us safe. And maybe more of, Lord, give us the courage to take the step out and to do what you want us to do. Because safety isn't what God promises. Um, you know, we, we get that idea that as early Christians, when we, we make that commitment, I'm good now, I'm safe, I'm in, impenetrable, nothing bad is going to happen. But that's not the truth. God uses that stuff to build us. So if, if we don't have any sort of testing, we're never going to be the people 
that he's called us to be. Maybe we need to enlarge the size of our goals so we can move what is capable within our own strength into what's only capable with God's strength. Bigger dreams. The second thing, and I love that you touched on that as well, Quippus, maybe we had a bit of connection, is reading our Bible day by day. You know, that is just an amazing way to connect with the heart of God. Um, And for me, it's not only a challenge, it's probably even more of a challenge for me because when you issue the challenge to someone else as a pastor, you know you've got to be keeping that challenge. So I have, you know, in this last two months and a a bit, we're in February, where'd that go? I've just been getting, I've been known into the scriptures and God has been doing numbers on me and working through me. As you read through the scripture, I love it, it's, it's been said a lot of times, when you read through, it's not that you're reading through the scripture, but the scripture is reading through you. And that's what I felt like uh, this year. When we sit down and touch base with the word, we, we align our hearts with God's heart. And it changes how we see the world, it changes what we do, and it changes, most importantly, who we are. God makes us into the people that he wants us to be. The third thing is probably the hardest. Solitude. Silence is awkward, isn't it? As soon as I stop talking, everyone's like, he's not talking anymore. He stopped talking as he forgot where he is. But solitude is really hard. And I think even more... You look around, even when people are sort of sitting by themselves, they're not sitting in their, their thoughts, they're sitting on their phone. We, we don't get solitude. Oh, I was blown away. I'm at Pluma. We've got all these teenagers. And you know what they're doing now? They've got little speakers that go everywhere. And so there was no rainforest sounds, no peace and quiet. We were just pumping all sorts of ugly music that I had no idea what was saying, but I'm hoping it was good because we're on camp and we're at school. But we, we struggle with solitude. And, and Jesus sets the example for us in Mark 2. Uh, he, in the midst of his ministry, everything is going great. You know, this is not what a pastor does. The people are clamoring to hear what God is calling out for them to, to do. And Jesus withdraws. He retreats. He goes up on the mountain to be by himself in solitude to pray to God. And the disciples come up and they go, Jesus, what are you doing? The people are ready. Come on down, they're good to go. And Jesus has been realigning with God. And he goes, you know what? We've got a new destination. We've got a new place. That's my son. Uh, We're going to go over here. I think it is anyway. Solitude is a difficult place to go. But we need it not only for refreshing, not only for our souls, but also because of our direction. Um, It's hard to hear that inside voice when we're we're doing 100 miles an hour and we're constantly entertaining ourselves, we're constantly having noise. You know, Susanna Wesley, I love that story of her. She had nine kids. There was a few, she she must have been part of the Swinburne clan. But she she just used to camp and each, you know, in her day, she grabbed the apron, apron, chucked it over the, the head and she would have her quiet time there and the kids knew you don't mess with mum when she's got the apron over her head. You know, there might be death outside, but you don't mess with mum when she's in that little huddle. And I, I think we need to build more of that into our lives, that quiet. That's why the morning's good, especially if your family's not a morning family, because you can get up and you can have a bit of quiet before the chaos ensues. So take time to listen to the voice of God, because he is so keen to talk to you, so keen to tell you what he's got planned 
um, and we run off and we do our own thing. Number four is daily prayer to confess sin. You know, small variations on the compass take us way off course. And if, we, if we're not checking in, if we haven't got short accounts with God and short accounts with our people that hold us accountable, it's so easy just to drift, to, to go off course. And God's saying, let's go this way. And we're saying, we want to go this way. We want to do our own thing. Take short accounts with God. Be willing to, to on a daily basis, just commit stuff that's, that's off our attitudes, thoughts, actions. Keep a short account with God. And these spiritual disciplines will give us confidence to know what God wants of us and allow us the headspace to be able to act on what he's calling us to do. I love Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your paths. It's a beautiful verse. I wouldn't mind singing One Thing Remains. I love, I love that, that these words have kind of connected with, with where we're going. Higher than the mountains that I face, stronger than the power of the grave, constant in the trial and the change, one thing remains. And we can have that consistency of faith to know...